You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, an opportunity to transcend the binary, negate the debate, and play instead at the level of creation itself. It's not too late to bend reality to the higher collective will. Everything's alive and counting on us to rise to the occasion. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, storyteller and mage, my longtime friend, Grant Morrison. I, I just love looking at the world through different different lenses, and I found that these, some of the magical lenses are really good for triggering new ways of thinking. Grant and I will be considering the magical power of art and storytelling. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been overwhelmed with the news this past week. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing, COVID's resurgence, Trump's commitment to remain president no matter the electoral outcome, the Breonna Taylor verdicts, the television fiasco passing for political debate. And I've got something so great to share on this episode of Team Human. I kind of prefer rather than doing a whole monologue to just take a breath an insulating space to separate this conversation from the mundane, chaotic atrocity around us and see if we can't immerse ourselves in something entirely different, refreshing, and affirming. And what could be more affirming than the reunion of two people who just love to be together? It's my true pleasure an offering, really, to invite you to the conversation I just had with my old, dear friend, Grant Morrison. He doesn't really do media, nothing like this anyway, and it's much less an interview than a reunion under duress. Grant Morrison wrote comics including The Invisibles, We Three, The Filth, tons of Batman and Superman, and also the TV shows Happy and Brave New World. He's everywhere. He's also known for his magical practice and mass popularization of sigils. We met first in the mid-90s, I guess, on the tour for a collection of psychedelic rave fiction called Disco 2000, in which we'd both participated. I don't remember a lot about that tour except getting high in a big round bathtub with him and his partner at the time, Victoria Beattie. But we'd already crossed paths in the Unimind, with him footnoting my Siberia in his comic series The Invisibles, and me becoming a fan of his comics since he wove Borges into the series Doom Patrol. We tend to have our deep, long, crazy conversations during major global crises, like right after 9-11, and this one is no exception. I think most of the things we refer to make sense on their own, but if something doesn't, just ask me in the Discord, and I'm happy to explain. So here's Grant Morrison speaking from one of the giant rooms in his home in Scotland. Hey, how you doing? All right. Look at you. Oh, my gosh. It feels so... uh... I miss you. (laughs) It's been a long time. I miss everyone in America. I haven't been to America since last November, and it's, it's really, it gets to me, you know, it's kind of all my friends are there. Yeah, well, a lot of them anyway. How are you doing in pandemic times? It's been the same, and I'm, I'm writing, so I've always been self-isolating, you know what it's like. 
that's the the condition of the writer's life is to self-isolate so it's easy you know it's easy to just disappear into what you do but it must be hell for people who are in just an apartment and they cannot get out and they're just confined by this and they don't have they don't have a a, a way out of it or a hobby that, that keeps them going i know americans are particularly angry about that they feel like it's you know the state coming down from outside controlling their well, they do because they've got to impose that. That there's got to be some rational to it, but it's not. It's nature is coming down. And nature's coming down hard. You know? She's pissed off. I mean, very much so, and it's pretty, pretty obvious by now. I should think, you know, but people are still in denial. And it's funny. It really is like if there was a zombie apocalypse or an alien invasion tomorrow, most people would just say it wasn't happening, even as they were being rounded up, even as they've been herded into the flying saucers. <laughs> chase down the street by the zombies, they would just be saying, no, this is some government thing, this is just some means of trying to control the population. They've already got the population under control. They did that a long time ago. They don't really need any of these stunts to do anymore. I know, except in some ways, these uh, uh, things like the COVID are, are making people more aware of the underlying government control. In some ways, all the QAnon people, they're not specifically right, but they're thematically right. Well, the, the, the odd and interesting thing about that to me, I think, is the fact that so much of, of what would have been, say, you know, in the Invisibles in the 90s has now migrated to this other, you know, it's, it's what we thought was a kind of, you know, lefty punk rebellion has turned into quite a different type of thing, but using a lot of the exact same methods, the magic, the the terminology, the language, the framing of the the conceptual war between, you know, the old and the corrupt and the new and, and the, the revolutionary. And it's, it's weird that it almost it migrated to the other side. They used the magic better than we did. They do. That's, you know, and that was, in some ways, I was just listening back to our DisinfoCon stuff in preparation to see you again. And I listened to even my talk. I got up there and I said, um, we won. The counterculture won. Yeah. But we've got to let them in now. We can't, you know, that we were all like, oh, you can't come on our side, George Bush. We don't like you. You have to suffer. And I said, no, we have to welcome them in. Otherwise, they're going to become the counterculture. <laughs> and, and I feel like they did. Yeah, they took I mean, all we, our we stuff. Did, we did win all the stuff we talked about. It won, you know, but it became the tools of a completely different agenda, I think. And and that's that's interesting. You know, it's just as as the left became more divided and more turned against itself, I think the right took up the ideas of magic to the point where the, the president lives in a, a world of magical thinking. It's just absolute. If I deny this, it will cease to be, you know, the, my, my will is stronger than reality. Even when it's not, I think he genuinely exists in that bubble where he, he truly believes that by by thinking it hard enough, by repeating it again and again, it will become reality. And there's there's some truth to that. There's some logic. I mean, it's the way magic works. He was raised, I mean, he was raised in the church of Norman Vincent Peale. Yeah, exactly. The guy who wrote <laughs> you know, the, the power of positive thinking. The power of positive thinking to overturn tornadoes, to 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 you know to turn back tides and fires. I mean, I think he truly he truly has that in him. So yeah, I mean, it's it's to understand that that clearly the magic has worked and it's worked in a lot of interesting ways. But it's maybe time for for some of the people on what used to be our side to reclaim it. And I'd, again, you know, I don't I don't like sides and I don't like binaries, but. 
there's there's such a polarization right now that maybe everyone needs to kind of meet in the middle again using the same techniques. I know. I always wanted to believe that bad people couldn't use magic. You know, that you had to have some sort of integrity and connection to Godhead. Yeah, but we've, we've all seen those movies where it's the black magician or Baron Mordo from Doctor Strange. You know, we should have known, we should have understood <laughs> that they're <laughs> equally good. And I mean, my idea was just to steal all their fashion stuff so that the... the the cool magicians looked as as scary and goth as the the bad magicians, and that kind of worked for a while. But it's it's uh, it wasn't a long term sustaining uh, possibility. <laughs> I know, and they do it now with camp. You know that Melania Trump was on the uh, yeah. Republican convention wearing a Nazi outfit. Yeah, yeah. You know, signs and signifiers. <laughs> She's trying to reclaim something. God knows what. Yeah, but it's 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 working it's working you know it's it reminds me you know and i wanted i wanted to talk to you about brave new world because i just uh, uh i had watched one but then i i what's it called i i binged it yeah I, yeah and it's beautiful i mean it's so and and i mean this in a good it's so different from how i saw the book because i saw the book in kind of huxley period more like brazil with weird wires yeah, yeah. and things and this is so it's, it's a future. It's a believable sci-fi future. But the thing that made me sad was, in some ways, the, the world of Brave New World, where everybody knows everyone's thoughts, and they have great orgies. Like, all the time. <laughs> oh, my God. And everything's clean, and they get all the food they want, and there's people taking, you know, Amazon people taking care of it. <laughs> it's like, that... In some ways, that's the rave dream, that we would connect into one colonial organism. But in Great Brave New World, the only way we can get there is with drugs and extreme social control and, you know, and a class system. Were you just depicting that world or do you feel like the only way to create that organismic sort of uh, utopian human thing is, is that that's a false goal, that we really can't create one giant global rave yeah i mean obviously it's what we all hoped for 30 years ago but no going into brave new world it was very much the approach was to let's treat it as a utopia not a dystopia and see what kind of filter that then provides like you say it looks pretty cool from a lot of angles you know so the, the, the interest for me was to not tell one of those, you know, Marxist dystopian stories where basically it's there's this effete culture which has risen up and everybody's happy, but there's something inauthentic about that happiness. And into that will then come some figure of, you know, old school cowboy morality who all he has to do is punch the effete leader in the nose and everybody suddenly realises that what they really want is blood and guts and a fight in the saloon. And I just didn't want to tell that story. You know, it's been told so many times. I think of things like Elysium or Metropolis or, you know, you could name name a dozen of them. So this one was about what, what if this is as good as it gets? What if they actually have reached the next level of organisation? But it's not finished. It's, as you say, utopia is always on the horizon. And it seemed like there was something really interesting to explore the failure of that type. John the Savage tries to foment a Marxist revolution of the proletariat, but there is no proletariat. They're just like drones in a hive. They have been bred to love their work. 
And they don't want to be alphas. They don't want to be betas. That's too much work. That doesn't suit an epsilon's nature or its personality. The epsilons are happy to do those menial jobs because they've been bred that way. And so it was interesting to see that the attempt to create that, the, the, the revolution of the proles, founders, as it does in Huxley, it founders in, in the TV show. And it was very much to to say, no, this defeat civilization, this, you know, potentially bloodless, passionless thing is equally as human. And all for all its conditioning, John the Savage is as conditioned by his mother, by the ideas of family, by all the the old ideas of, of, of America in, 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 in the series, which obviously in the book, the, the Savage Lands was a small Zuni Pueblo in New Mexico. And we expanded it to be all of America and they secede from the world state back after the, the, the great catastrophe that takes out a third, two thirds of the population. So America secedes. And the idea was to put it almost in the position of, of the, where the Middle East is in regards to America, that suddenly you have this culture that's 300 years old, trying to sustain when other people have moved on, when the rest of the culture has moved on to this higher degree of organisation, they are still trying to live out the, the American dream in a world where they've completely depopulated the continent, where everyone dies at the age of 30 because they're so sick, where a Mars bar costs $50,000 because of inflation, where there's been six presidents in the last five months, and it was that, you know, a kind of broken down version of what America is now, surviving into the future and daring to try and challenge this, this higher level. And that just seemed to make it much more interesting than the notion that one side was right and the other side was wrong. It was certainly that one side was more organised, but that organisation was not an end state. And perhaps the introduction of John and the lessons that he teaches allows Lenina in this version of the story because we wanted to, to foreground the, the female perspective a lot more than Huxley does, obviously. And so she's the one who sees the potential for taking ideas and evolving her culture to an even higher degree of organisation, which we haven't seen yet. So that becomes the kind of hidden, brave new world of the, of the whole series. And then, so how much do you do? And do you thought up the new approach and then like wrote up, you write a, a pitch because yeah, I guess I mean, the book's it's, public it's, domain, you can just do it? No, no, it was, we were, we were asked to do it, you know, Brian Taylor and I, after we'd done Happy, and they kind of liked what we'd done with Happy, so they asked us both to come up with a pitch, and, you know, I kind of uh, I seized on the science fiction aspects of it, because that's my thing. So we did a pitch, and using that utopian idea, that's what people liked about it, because everyone else, I think, had come in and pitched the classic, oh, it's a dystopia, and all they need is a punch in the nose, and they'll learn how society really works, and we weren't going that route. So they liked that, and we got it, and we just we worked up a, a, a huge Bible of how the world would work and solved a lot of problems that Huxley had left, because he wasn't really thinking about it as, you know, there's a lot of things in there that don't quite line up. So we had to solve them, and out of that came a lot of the, for me, the most interesting ideas. But that, that chugged along for a while, and then uh, David Weiner came in as a showrunner, and he was a, a, a playwright who'd worked on, on the Walking Dead stuff. And he just kind of dismantled it and rebuilt it. And he brought in the, the, the writer's room. And again, it was an amazing writer's room with a cosmologist in there. We had, you know, there was out of 11 people, nine of them were women. So eight of them were women. So it was very much like, what new ideas can we get to, to apply to this text? And out of that came the, what, the, the final version that you saw, which was very much, you know, guided by, by how David wanted to take the, the, the material that we had. And then when they make it, do you get to go and see sets and things? 
Yeah, well, I didn't have to, but we went down to London to see the the pilot getting shot, and it was it was really fun. You know, they did it in one of those big corporate towers in in the city of London, and it was it was pretty good to watch. But you know, filming is boring. I, I prefer the the writers' room was great, just sitting with writers every day. I I couldn't do it all the time because I like to be on my own, but. Just the experience of being in there for months and being able to share ideas with people and seeing these other, you know, great minds coming up with stuff right. was amazing. Because they're crazy smart people. When you actually talk with them, like I've met some of the people who worked on like Westworld and the OA, and you can complain about the episodes, but you meet the people, and yeah. they they can stay. I thought I was smart. They can stay ahead of you in terms of references, <laughs> and, and you know what I mean. They're really yeah. Well, no, they they took it very seriously, and they were living the book. So you know, it was it was part of their lives for like six months. I, I was kind of dipping in and out <laughs> to try and uh, not have to do all the hard work. But they they were in there for six months at a time and just really living through that book. So yeah, I mean, I think there was there was a lot of great uh, ideas went into it. Except for maybe Superman, I haven't seen you deal much with like life after death sorts of stuff. I mean, because you, you don't really think much about that, do you? Or, you know, now that we're in late 50s, you might be almost almost 60 by now. I mean, do you think about what happens after? Oh, I've, I've, yeah, I mean, I think all life is, is spent, if you're, a, if you're a sensitive at all, <laughs> your whole life is spent thinking about what happens when you're not around. But... Uh, I don't have any proof of any kind of afterlife, so I can't I can't place any any faith or store in a certainty of it. When when I had my kind of spiritual experience in Kathmandu, I had the absolute sense that I had understood it and that there was a higher dimensional unfolded version of me that I would then, at the point of death, unfold out into again. But it was much bigger than me, and this whatever I am was a tiny little compression of something. You know, much grander. It was a flattened down diagram almost of something that I might become in the afterlife. You know, and like DMT experience puts you in something that almost feels like a kind of afterlife. But the trouble is all of our conscious experiences take place in, in life. Even people who, you know, have near-death experiences, they don't really die. So we actually have no, we've nothing to, to, to prove it. And with nothing to prove it, I can't really put much store in it. I mean, where do you sit on all that? I'm hopeful, but doubtful. But it's also, I mean, what what do we imagine? What they were going to wake up in sort of twenty six year old versions of our bodies, you know, and and do what? You know, suddenly have the ability to fly around space and time, looking like Doug or like Grant or being Doctor Who. And that's so it becomes it becomes. Uh, what do we actually imagine it would be like? You know, to to enter eternity. <laughs> yeah. Would, would we be anything like these little people? Would we even want to be? You know, to be these little uh, the, the universe poured into a bottle. No, but you know, I keep thinking. I, I always think that the we'll get the Bardos. You know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead stuff. Yeah, because they're so miserable and like that's just like a pure ordeal. So I imagine we'll get them. <laughs> but I think they're happening at the edge of consciousness when consciousness is breaking down and all the neurons are going out, which I think will be quite an alarming and an interesting experience. Yeah. You know, and those of us who have experienced kind of ego death states of of consciousness might have some prep for that, but. I think it'd be very hard to imagine that very last spark going out and the the vast emotional, you know, the primal, primal, unspeakable emotion that will be attached to that moment and and how that might come across, you know, as as a revelation, as a as a, a an eternal moment of either heaven or hell, who knows, you know. But no. the bad those definitely because they're just like, oh God, I'm dead now. I've got to get through this. 
Yeah, but you know, some of the bardos are really tempting. I mean, my problem, yeah, I'm not ones, afraid of them. You know you're going to go with that red one I'm just to totally, see it. <laughs> like, I've not gotten enough sex in this lifetime. To, to, I don't know that a lifetime could to not jump into the orgy one. You know, yeah, well, when it's passing that's the one by. you'd be headed for. I think I might be drawn towards that, but you end up being stuck in there as well. <laughs> yeah. The other problem with it is is... By the time you die or in the Bardos, chances are you've been so weak. I mean, you're like lying there with cancer and sick and all. So, you know, I certainly hope if I do the Bardos, they're they're abstracted from the whatever pain my body's in at that moment. Because who wants to go through it while you're suffering? You know. Yeah, but I mean, I guess I guess everyone has in one way or another. You know, until until recently when we had effective anesthetics. <laughs> But I don't know. I don't know. Is the, the death process might be so fabulous you wouldn't you wouldn't want to give it up? Who knows? Yeah. Well, I know Timothy Leary was hoping it would be fabulous and was all prepared, designed for dying and all. And about two or three weeks before it finally happened, he was like, "Oh, f- all this. Get me yeah, the morphine. morphine. Get, <laughs> get me the fentanyl. <laughs> but no that, Buddhists. No monks." And that, that that is how we would be. I mean, the real truth, because I always thought I'd reach a certain age and I'd be like Gandalf and it would be kind of all behind me, all the fears and the worries, and I'd have kind of processed it all out, everything I've done to to, to get over that. But it I was hoping you would too. Yeah, I know, but I'm sorry I've let everyone down yet again. <laughs> yeah, well... But I think everyone just... I think Krishnamurti, I think everyone just... You know, but if you're maybe some major guy, you've got to pretend you're not as scared. <laughs> I mean, you worked at it, though. You did enough uh, enough uh, uh, sigil magic and everything else that, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't kind of find a, an escape hatch, I don't know that there is one. Well, and I, I might be right about we're simply almost like game sprites and in relation to something much higher, an unfolded version of ourselves which exists above space and time. And I think there is the evidence, I, the only evidence I have apart from that experience from it is just the, the undeniable reality that inside my tiny little skull are infinities, like infinities upon infinities inside all of our skulls, which leads me to believe there's an undeniable higher dimensional aspect to us in there. Because what is it otherwise? It's, it's The space is immense. We can fit anything in. We can fit the DC multiverse. We can add the Marvel multiverse. We can add, what if there was multiverse times one million? And our heads still kind of hold these concepts. So inside there is more than there is outside. And that's kind of undeniable. But what is that inside? And I guess that, you know, that's part of what all our explorations have been is to try and figure out what exactly is that immense space in there and what else lives in there, perhaps, you know, and what does it, what does it imply as, as who we are and the dimensions that we have within us? Yeah, I mean, I've been taking some comfort in uh, Terence McKenna's idea that we're more of a of a transceiver than we are the thing. So when we're looking inside, we're not really looking inside. We're looking at resonating coils to some, you know, other quantum state. Yeah, which and would also be nice. We're, we're we're undeniably a part of an organism that includes all of us. You know, add add the time dimension, and we, there's no escape from that. We all came from the same mitochondrial cell. We're all actually connected in time, but we feel we feel divided in the same way. You know, if you put a, a hand through a, a flat plane, the singular object will become four circles. Each of those four circles—that's us. And I, I think 
to remind ourselves that we're all part of the hand is the next great task for humanity to get beyond the, the terrible sense of division that's that's inflicted upon everything right now. But I do I do think we have we're undeniably little parts of something bigger. So again we might just we might just become more of the consciousness of the whole when we die. The same way that every time a, a skin flake comes off my hand, you know, that's a, a beautiful little organism that's filled with its own biological machinery that worked away for all this time and it just sloughs off dead and drops to the floor and I don't even notice it, but you know, that's that's like us, I'm still here and another one like it will take my place, will take its place and, and will take my place, another one like me. I mean, this sense of uh, connection to a whole is part of what makes... Uh, uh... A whole lot of things make sense. What makes magic make sense? All the sense of coincidence. And and it's like, oh, it's not a coincidence. You're looking at your own hand is why you think exactly. it's a coincidence. You know, it's not reincarnation. It's just you getting a signal from another part of the, the giant structure. You know, suddenly you've got a Napoleon signal because right over there, Napoleon's still happening as part of this structure. So there's a lot of things like that, that that become easy to understand and quite physical. Because I don't, I don't have, have hold much uh, truck with the supernatural at all after all the investigations over the years. And I think everything is explicable, but it doesn't necessarily make it any less wondrous. It just makes it even more wondrous to me. Oh yeah, I mean it's like all the I know the amazing Randy people and all, and you know, quashing out any superstition. But it's like for the people that want to find something, it's like. Isn't this weird enough already? <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. And it's, it's their, their charming need for there to be more that's almost sadder. The rest of us have been through that and realised you don't need more. It's all, you know, we don't need, like, all the magic you need, you've got. You know, it's right here in front of you and saying, well, that's that. A man can't make an elephant disappear. Well, he probably can't, but he can possibly make you think you have witnessed the disappearance of an elephant, which is just about as good. And if they've understood it in terms of, you know, all the magic of the past was about, if you wanted to raise a demon, you would perform a certain series of operations. Now, the fact is, those series of operations will generally give you the same demon every time. So it actually functions, it really works. It's like if you conjure, if you conjure Hermes, you're unlikely to get Kali. Because you've done all the work to make a Hermes state of consciousness happen. The fact that it can be repeated, I find, is like fascinating. People don't talk about it, but you can repeat. Magicians have things called spells, you know, which are like formulae and produce desired results pretty much as, as often as experiments would do. So I think that you have to look at that aspect of it. If all it is is changing consciousness, you, you know, you, it's possible to summon Hermes. Well, Hermes is just a state of consciousness that's really speedy, that makes you want to orate and talk and, and write poetry and communicate with people. That's what the god Hermes stands for, same as the, you know, Thoth, the, the, the scribe, or, or Odin, or, or Ogma, or any of these gods who are about communication and language and, and speed, and also deception and trickery. But it's just a, a state of mind that, you know, a, a Viking would conjure Odin to get that same state of mind. And that would be Odin. Odin would be there because that's the name of that state of consciousness and it's super highly focused. So God states are incredibly highly focused and humans can't maintain them for long. That's why we're not all gods, but the God persists because that guy next to you can also summon Hermes and Hermes is as absolutely present within him 
So Hermes is more like a distributed field and all the gods are and they don't have to be supernatural to be absolutely real and also eternal in terms of the human experience because any human from any point in time can experience that sense. Communication, can't wait to talk. I mean, I'm talking to Doug online. I am currently possessed by Hermes, you know, <laughs> waving my hands about, excited by the ideas. So that is the God, and it doesn't have to be any more supernatural than that, and it's available and it can be brought down to very highly specific and concentrated states by magical ritual and by excluding everything from your environment that isn't Hermes related. And that's that's all it takes. So I think all of these things can be can be talked about in ways without having to invoke, you know, other realms or ghosts or things that can't be touched. You know, there are a lot of things that can't be touched, but they're undeniably real. You know, as I always say, the, the meaning of Hamlet is undeniably real. In fact, people could write books about it and fight over it, but you can't touch it. It's, it's as insubstantial as, as Hamlet's dad's ghost, but it's real. So there are other things like that. Right, which is the whole point of that play. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's there. Yes, it's there. It's there, but you know, you can't prove nothing, but but it's there. But that's that to me was the real value of really everybody from Aleister Crowley to John Lilly, that they're saying, do these things and you will get to this weird place. So John Lilly said, okay, once you do this, you're going to get to what I think is the 31st level. There's going to be purple people. They're yeah. going to be walking upside down. And you do all the things. You go in the tank. You take this much ketamine. You think these thoughts. You will see those. Those They're there. Yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> you, you, are, you are deliberately constructing a very specific state of consciousness that feels like contact with machine intelligence from another dimension, in, in Lilly's case, you know. And someone else, as you say, it can be done, it can easily be replicated. So, you know, I guess, like, that's what magic is for me. It's not, it's not the pursuit of some, some holy grail. It's the actual, the, the energizing and the enchantment of the, the reality of the world we live in and all the things that we've understood and maybe taken for granted and, and not realized can be placed together in new configurations that, that to other people might seem magical or, or, or unusual or supernatural, but they're not. At the same time, though, don't you don't you see much, uh, your work sometimes as sigils? So you know, when I wrote Alistair and Adolf, yeah, I saw yeah. that as a sigil to try to bring down, uh, you know, the, the corporate, uh, the digital corporate uh, uh, sigil magic that they were using. You know, I mean, do you do you? Do you do it and you don't, I mean, someone like you, I wouldn't think you, you do a sigil magic for the success of my project. You do the sigil for the, the purpose of the project. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also, it tends to be if I'm exploring a particular state, you know, and if, if, if it's, you know, I'll talk about it, say, in terms of the, the tree of life, Kabbalistic tree of life. So I'm exploring, say, uh, Chesed. And uh, so I write All-Star Superman. It's about fathers. It's about the idea of the good father, the man in blue coming down. It's about my own father's death at the same time. And it's about a lot of other things, but it comes from that impulse. Like it's okay, I have reached this conscious state in my explorations of the Kabbalistic tree of life in which I've spent years in each sphere. Now I look back and it's very organized. And to know that the next thing after that is, well, I've got to really tackle the abyss now. I've been thinking about it and writing about it all my life, but now's the time to actually go through an experiential, which was awful, but fueled a whole bunch of books. 
like you know annihilator and nameless which we're all dealing with that and on the other side of that there's the, the state of consciousness which is bina the kind of highest female principle or feminine principle so out of that the, the desire to explore these ideas fueled like lenina crown's portrayal in brave new world it's fueled the whole that three book wonder woman series that i've just finished so all of it's kind of, the, all of it comes from specifically exploring things like that and then using, well, how can the energy from this be used for something positive? How can someone hopefully read this Wondering book, the third one, and see the potential for bringing down the patriarchy using dominatrix techniques and or something like that? And each one of them becomes an interesting experiment. How do, how do we take down these bastards using the ideas and symbols from this particular sphere? And, and that informs all the work that comes out of these 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 very deliberate magical workings or sigil workings using the comics. What does that involve from you? Do you end up picking up all these old books and reading stuff? Or is it is it more practices and meditation or it's just all now now because I do it all the time, it's just all integrated. It's you know, it's the four mile walks, it's the swimming, it's everything's dedicated towards sitting down and trying to bring an energy onto the paper and finding symbols that will carry the energy and connect with people and also you know that will that, that will honor the spirit of the character that you're working with but the characters are always i've always got to have something that I'm, I'm trying to say some you know annoying revolutionary idea that, that can become it can become a vehicle for but yeah i mean all of its practice you know i'll do the meditation i do the the dedications to the gods i'll dedicate to ganesh before a project i'll, I'll talk to the appropriate gods i'll do actual rituals and and integrate it all i mean i guess i have my own you know pantheon my own set of knowledge but when i talk to you or or jason louv or someone it's like you guys know the whole kabbalistic tree and everybody on it and who crosses over to where and oh well Dion fortune says this but then this says this does that <laughs> that's the product of a misspent youth <laughs> you, you you got an education while we were reading these books <laughs> Yeah, but it's like it—it it seems to be almost essential knowledge on a certain level. And honestly, to me, all the, all they are—it's like frameworks or filters or metaphors. You know, again, it's—I know there are people who would say take the the tree of life and it becomes—you know—it's a lifetime study. I agree, but some people might find in that a basis for belief or for faith. Or, or to me, that it's it's more mercenary. I mean, everything to me is. It's a way of looking at the world, you know, if I disagree with an idea, then I want to see how that idea looks through the person's eyes who's thinking it. So put it in a story. If you want to write about fascism or write dark side, you know, Jack Kirby's ultimate villain, and try to understand what would what is that drive. So for, I, I just love looking at the world through different different lenses, and I've found that some of the magical lenses are really good for triggering new ways of thinking. You know, like I say, if you if you choose to believe you're in the sphere of Bina and you now experience all this like feminine energy you've got through the abyss, it's there's a certain sense of like being washed up, gasping on the beach and, and being nurtured, then you can apply it to work and suddenly there's a new filter, you know. Because I felt that I thought, well, when I'm doing Wonder Woman, I don't want to repeat the boy hero journey, you know, I started to think, why is that regarded as intrinsically our culture's story, you know, the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. And I thought it's actually very narcissistic in this notion of the, the young boy who rises up to take out the corrupt king and then ultimately replaces him. 
it's just this, this kind of downbeat, you know, and I thought, is there an alternative heroine's journey that I could use for this? And so again, so thinking out of Bina, using Bina as a filter, using Bina as a framework, I get all these new connections that I hadn't had in the in what you could say was the previous sphere, you know, that was the sphere of, as I say, that brought out the stuff about Superman and superheroes being how useful can they be? And all the way, all the way down that. So all, all they are is, is it's, it's like putting on glasses for me and seeing yeah. how does the world work? How can, how is information reordered from this perspective? And, and, and can, can that excite my creativity? Because it keeps it aflame, you know, it keeps me trying to think in new ways of seeing things. Yeah, it's like just almost a, a, for some people, it's like picking a new character sheet, you know. I'm going to create a character. Okay, I'm going to walk around the world as if I'm a bodhisattva and everyone I look at becomes awakened. And that's my experience now. Yeah. And so it it's not, but works. you can do it with characters and you can you can take them off again, which, as you know, is, is probably better because it'd be so easy, again, to be possessed or to be enthused by a certain idea of, of who you are. why I always resisted the kind of guru thing, you know, when I was younger, it was like all these, you know, kids would want me to be their guru or tell them how to, and I was so against that, it just seemed like I'm not in a position to tell you all of that, you know, the things I can be helpful with, but <clears throat> please don't put me as an impediment <clears throat> in your own, your own rise towards self-awareness. So I, I was always against that aspect of it, but in, in the stories you can at least embody different viewpoints and set them against each other and people can make their own decisions as to what you feel or believe at any given time. Well, and I'd much rather someone be, you know, set up a, a, a devotional table to a character I've done than to me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, at least the character will just outlast us, you know. It might yeah, be <laughs> and it can be perfect. But the thing that you... that. I think part of the reason why you may run into this more than most of us is you bring, you exude a kind of a confidence, a merry self, you know, self-aware but self-confident a power. Like when we did, um, I'll never forget when we did that. Uh, uh, workshop at the Omega Institute. Oh, yeah. That and, is. you know, and I bring my good Jewish self-doubt approach to the world and all that. And you come and you're just like, yeah, this is all real. We could just do it. Come on, let's go. And and then that evening, there was someone had a guitar. You pick up the guitar and you start playing these John Lennon songs. And the light is emanating from the top of your skull. And I'm thinking, wow, do you, does Grant, do you walk around the world? Do you walk through life just uh, uh, not doubting? Just there's this. I'm gonna. It, it, it seems when when I when I experience you, it seems as if I, I feel like I'm not in a bad way. Like I'm more of a kind of a Woody Allen introspective, <laughs> you know, getting insights by questioning, questioning my motive. Well, do I mean this? Do I not? Am I good? Am I not? Is this ethical? Is it not? And I get to great places, but that you get to places by just pedal to the metal. I'm alive. Let's just go. I mean, do you experience doubt and self-questioning in your, in, in transit? Well, naturally. Yeah. I mean, I, of course <laughs> I do. You know? And uh, things go wrong. You know, I've been, I've been through the abyss. I've seen a lot of doubt, a lot of questioning, a lot of horror. But I just, to me, it just doesn't seem as it's not the the best way to face the world. And then generally, 
it, it feels like absurdity to me. The world feels absurd. So my basic feeling is that I'm kind of in a Monty Python type thing, you know. And ultimately, anything that seems too grave or too self-indulgent becomes ridiculous. It, 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 it immediately collapses into absurdity. So for me, so the approach is always absurd. But, you know, I, I grew up in, in, in the west coast of Scotland, which can, is quite grim. And we weren't really given a lot of uh, opportunities here, you know. Our, our parents were great and, and, and gave us books to read. But generally, by and large, you were told you would never amount to anything. You would always be a failure. So there's a lot of fear, you know, and the fact that I've done okay still bothers me because I used all my own the methods that I talk about, the magic and presenting a certain approach to the world. It really works, really, really works. But then I look around and I see people who it's not worked as well for them. And suddenly you, you do seem to have more privilege. You do seem to have done better than people. So yeah, I mean, all that, I find that, you know, there's doubt there, there's, but I would still always, I'll just pick up a guitar if I'm in a room and nobody's doing it, and I'll say, well, somebody's got to entertain the place, I'll just do it, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I don't think I'm that great at anything, but I think I'll just always give it a go. And the things I've given a go to longer, you know, I've achieved some mastery over them. But generally, it's really it's just give it a go because nobody else in the room seems to be willing to do this. If somebody else is in who's like the, a real guitarist and a real singer, then I'll always just sit back and be very quiet and let that happen. But yeah, I do, I do have a sense of just, come on, you know, you're here to entertain the place. There's people watching. Yeah, but it's also part of the spirit. I mean, you've helped so many people along the way, you know, that, that a lot of people, particularly in comics, they feel like they don't have elbow room for one another. It's like, oh, no, you know, but, you know, I don't know how many dozens of people you brought to Karen Berger back in the Vertigo days, and you're just always there. It's like, as if... Uh, it's so weird. I mean, I guess it's in every industry, but there's this sense that if you help someone else, it's going to somehow, you're going to, there's going to be less for you, you know, but you've manifest the opposite direction. Never, you know, I mean, but it's just, again, it's just a certain, a certain wealth of, when I was working with Mark Miller, it would just be, tell me a story and I couldn't help, but then say, oh no, so if you did this, Mark, or if you tried this, if you tried that. I just couldn't help it. So anybody who comes along, and I think it's better to, to help people. Yeah, it just is, is, is better. I mean, to get down to the basics of, of that, it just, uh, it's better in every way in the long run. It's better to, to, to have the confidence to be able to help people, to not see them as competition or people who replace you. Even in comics, naturally, generations replace generations. But I still think it's, you just have to be part of that. I always think, and I always think you should encourage people and tell them if they're good at something, to really tell them they're good. And if they've done a kind act, to tell them and to say you appreciate something. But I think it's important to, to constantly, you know, at least uh, try and emphasize the positive with people. But that sharing of ideas, I mean, I see it so much in comics and so little in television. You know, when I was working, even on Testament, I'm talking to Dean Haspel about it. And he's like, oh, why don't you try this or do that? Or you could have a character that does this. And it's like, this is what, what in the West Coast they would call IP. Just Not pouring exactly, out of it. But, you know, but for us, it's, it's, it's just you're meeting someone else who thinks like you and the excitement sparks and the, the hologram begins. And, you know, you can't help but joining in. And especially, I just, I just love to let my imagination run more than anything else. And then, you know, again, make up nonsense. If I could just do that, which I pretty much do, what am I saying? If I could do that for a living, yeah, well, I do. But that just, I love those talks where it's just spinning out and riffing on ideas and making new things to, or to try and make one another laugh or whatever. 
Yeah, it was funny. Was, I was with you when I had the idea for um, Alistair and Adolf. We were at uh, uh, we were like in the the basement of the Chrysler building at some uh, uh, Vertigo party, and I was like, "How about this for a superhero matchup? Hitler and Crowley." <laughs> You're like, oh, "Go for it!" <laughs> <laughs> And it turns out they knew each other, but, you know, I only found that out later. But, you know, speaking about your childhood, I remember in the movie, that big movie about you, which is still around, I'm sure, the, what was that called? Um, Talking with God. Yeah, Talking with God. You talk about your dad and um, how he was a nuclear war activist, I think. And he was part of this uh, protest where they had these cardboard coffins no this was actually inside like uh this was inside one of the the regional seats of government where the civil service was meant to flee once the the three minute warning was sounded so everyone was intended supposed to head for the hills and leave their families behind and within three minutes reach reach these uh, seats of government where the civil service would restart civilization after the apocalypse so my dad used to he, he would infiltrate these places back when the surveillance technology wasn't up to the task and kind of use me as a decoy sometimes and he, all he would do is he would take pictures of them and, and just disseminate them out into the underground and that was where we, we saw these things they had all the coffins and it was everyone's name in the electoral register as cardboard flattened coffins but the most interesting thing for me was that there's a pencil sharpener you know one of those old school drum pencil sharpeners and I thought, just that's so, you know, the idea that after a, a spirited exchange with Russia and and this place right here where I'm sitting now, I'm, I'm on the, the, the base. This is where all the Britain's nuclear weapons are stored. So this is an immediate target. If anything goes wrong, this will be vaporised within seconds. And this That's is a good strategy, actually. Yeah, go. so this is the place where my dad used to come protest and the subs still go up and down in front of the house, the nuclear submarines. But he, so he would come here. And as I say, he, he, he would take photographs and they had this, they had pencils, they had very, very sharp pencils. So <laughs> if it really went to hell and you're overrun by mutants with the eyes of spiders, you've got all these pencils to stab them with. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was tragic. It was the tragic naivety of, of that, the nuclear age. But yeah, my dad, my dad had been a soldier in World War II and he found himself just getting into more trouble with the British Army than anything else because they were ordering him to shoot civilians in India and he, he said if anyone shoots anyone I'll shoot the, the commanding officer right here and now. So they th flung him in the brig and then he threatened to kill anyone who came in to take him for a court-martial. So they just chucked him, they, they sent him to Burma as a paratrooper and he came home, he was, he'd, he'd become enamoured of Gandhi and he got into the idea of non-violent protest. So he was, he was a fascinating figure, he was a soldier who became a non-violent protester and was very very involved in that for the rest of his life and, and working in his community. They gave him a, they gave him a medal in the end. <laughs> so. That's great. I remember right after 9-11, uh, we had lunch at the Life Cafe. And I was saying, what are we going to do? What do we tell the kids? What are, how do we... And you said, look, this is... The grown-ups are never going to listen to us anyway. Just keep on with what you're doing. Do your stuff. But at the same time, I, when I hear about your dad and social protest and Gandhi and violent, you know, nonviolent, uh, do you do you see that we have a, a kind of an obligation to prevent species extinction at this point uh, deliberately, or is that sort of not directly what you're what you what you're working on? Well, it's 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 probably the best question to go out on. It's uh, 
with my father, I mean, I was, I was looking at how it worked with my father and while he was able to make big differences to people in the local community, ultimately, you know, I'm still sitting on top of a, a nuclear arsenal. And although the Americans have left, the nuclear arsenal is still here and we've still got problems with Russia, we've still got problems with everybody else in the world. So a lot of what he, he fought for, he wasn't able to change on that bigger scale. Again, with, you know, in the 80s, we all went on, on marches about the environment. You know, it was a big thing in the 80s. We were all out on those marches. And now you have Greta Thunberg who will look and say, well, we inherited this mess from your generation. It's going, no, no, we, we went here. Wait, everybody's inherited this mess going back generations. And, you know, I look at the civil rights images from 1968, and there's basically no difference between what you see then and Grandmaster Jay's Black Panthers of today. And so to see, I see that that kind of activism, you know, and even even almost militarising that kind of activism, not even whether it's peace activism, whether it's non-violent, it seems to fail on these bigger goals where it succeeds on, on the local level very much. And so I, I began to think of it that way and I thought, well, what can I do? I'm not an activist like my dad. I, I, I went on marches. I mean, I, I did all that until he died and then I found myself not doing any of those marches anymore because it just seemed, I'd, I'd watched him die in a hospital bed and thought, you know, he didn't, he wasn't able to change the big things that he wished he could change. So for me, it was all, it was all about using the, the work to at least touch people. That became my, uh, my constituency would be anyone who might pick up this comic, who might receive the signal, who might hear the noise, who might feel some kind of kinship with this person who'd sent out this signal. And I thought that's the best you can do and then to put out the good ideas through that so that it might touch some kid and you know sitting in the Midwest somewhere who feels completely alone until he picks up the Doom Patrol and realizes, oh, there's people who think like me, there's freaks like me, and they're out there. So that's that was the, the tack I choose to, to take. And I still think it is for all we would love to change the world, and when you're younger, you think you really can do the Messiah job. You know, it's when you're a young man, you definitely, as especially if you're a young man, you, you think, yeah, I'm the new Messiah, I'm going to make the difference. But I think that as the older I get, the more it's that local level is the best. You know, we're living here in this rural place, looking after all the animals here. Like I'm saving little feral kittens every day. We, we work with the local animal rescue people. We, you know, make sure local businesses are... We're working with everyone, we buy our food from here. And I, I kind of think that works better. The temporary autonomous zone is a better idea and it's the, the thing we can do on the smaller level. And then whatever talents you've got, put out the signal, put out the signal. But really, we are still living in the, 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 the adults world and they're never going to listen to us. It's, you know these people, they're the super billionaires who run the planet. They are sociopathic in a lot of ways. They've been trained that sociopathy or even psychopathy is the way to, to get ahead. And they're applying all these techniques that aren't really working. They're not working for everyone. They might survive a bit longer than us, but ultimately they can't survive their own their own advances. And we are not. We're we going to go up against them. We're going to go up against Vladimir Putin. We'd be dead in two days. So that's not where we can actually operate. And and the the old days of thinking you could somehow take over and make it better. It's the the system is so complex, and it's basically run by global gangsters who operate at a level so far above us. That's where I want to keep them. I don't ever want to interact with their reality. But 
they've kind of what what's been used now. The fact that people are using magic now is well, that's something we've always been good at. And the use of magic has collapsed the walls, I think, between what was real and what was illusion so thoroughly now. I, I, I spoke to you about this before, and I said, you know, those those two towers on the Tarot Moon card represent the, the gateway between reality and illusion. You know, Malkuth, the, the lower sphere, is everything material, and above us is, is the, the Moon sphere. Yes, Odd, and that's everything we can imagine. And it's all our delusions and our hallucinations and our daydreams and our fantasies. And that's kind of where, where magic is, is rooted, you know, because we can bring these back to enchant the material world, which in itself is just a whirling conglomerate of meaningless atoms. But we, consciousness brings meaning to, to, to those atoms. It brings meaning to everything we see. You know, when I, when I was in the abyss studying nihilism, and I realised, I got through it by realising even these nihilist guys, the speculative realists, and, you know, Raymond Brassey and Thomas Ligotti, they're trying to provide meaning, even if it's an anti-meaning or they think it's anti-meaning. That's not, they're enchanting the world with nihilism. So, to me, magic always wins, because magic always, at the end of nihilism, there is magic just saying, no, no, consciousness actually, everywhere it looks, it finds meaning. Even when told it doesn't, that's its joy. It just can't help but find meaning everywhere it looks, even if it's an anti-meaning. <clears throat> so on that level, I figure that the collapse of those two towers in 2001 were the physical manifestation of, of what you know the, the Kabbalists call the, the collapse of the 32nd path. And it's when Malkuth, the material sphere, is drawn up into Yesod, the sphere of illusion, the lunar sphere because then it corrects the symmetry of the, the tree of life. But that's an apocalypse. Why is it an apocalypse? Because reality and illusion become the same thing and we stop being able to tell them apart. And since then we've seen, you know, and I, I, I'll, I'll always go through the same list, but we've seen comic book superheroes become more realistic in attempts made to explain the ultimates, you know, they to explain how the powers would work, you know, the, the Iron Man. Then we have... The actual characters have been created in, in China and in American labs to be supermen, to be Iron Men. There are suits being created, there are attempts to upgrade the human biology. So these two things are colliding. We have virtual reality, we have reality TV, we have mixed reality, AR, fake news. There is a complete collapse and I don't think people realise they're living through an actual apocalypse, an existential apocalypse, which saw its manifestation in those towers, which sees its metaphorical manifestation in the moon card, the trial of the card of initiation. So I think we're in a place where magic is so strong, it's everywhere. It's like it's, you know, the president can snap his fingers and, and make the real unreal and vice versa. But as I say, we've always been good in that world. We've always been good with metaphor. We've always been good with making up stories. And when it becomes one story against another, then... The whole battle stops being a, a physical, it becomes like, who's got the best story? Who's got the best Bible? Who's got the best explanation that fits the facts but gives us a way forward? Because right now we're living through a story which kind of doesn't give us a way forward. So I'm all for Extinction Rebellion going in the streets. I'm all for tearing down the statues. I'm all for that. But I don't think, I think that's just playing the same game. And the game is now to create stories that are so powerful, and that's you know, it's maybe not us that will do it, maybe other people will do it, but that to me is, is the agenda, that's the job. 
and where can I get it? Can I get it on a comic? Great. Can I get it on TV? How many people can I reach with this viral spread of a better idea? And maybe that's that I can I, I'm able to fight in that arena and be useful because I can't yeah. I can't be useful in the physical world. Well, you can though. I mean, coupling that the the, the big viral you know n narrative war with real world, very local on the ground action. I mean, what you were describing in terms of helping real people in real life in a scaled way, that's the whole team human message. Yeah, exactly, you know, you know I mean, that's obviously, I mean, I'm bringing it to that close because it brings yeah. us back to exactly what you say in the book, you know, and I, you, you've come to the same conclusion. I think it seems to be, that instead of trying to create mass movements, it's, it's a, what we need is a distributed, a networked, kind of thing that doesn't have figureheads, that doesn't have gurus, that doesn't have people who can be taken down so it demoralizes the rest of the structure. That's the old school, that's the boy hero thing. Yeah. And so but we're still trying to get over that story, you know, and again, it's some of the things I've been doing are trying to suggest other potential stories, but I'm also, I'm sure young people can, can, can push their version of, of the, you know, it's the idea of the net, which is very, it's very bina, it's very feminine, you know, the notion of the network rather than the, the concentrated power, the distributed power, the, the, the kind of the nurturing thing. I, you know, I thought it was really interesting that when they had the houses of the old god, the dad god, were all empty during the pandemic, people were spontaneously banging pots and pans to honour a nurturing, caring spirit, which again is the opposite of the old dad whose houses were quiet. And there was an it was a, an interesting just a, a kind of you know atavistic expression of something, and I think in that is what what you're talking about in Team Human, and what I'm trying to talk about is to 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 use the network. It's you know the virus is the metaphor of of now. The virus is the thing that's that's really hurting the patriarchy and its structures, and it again is a distributed. It's a weapon that that can't be confronted. It can't be lied to. It can't be talked down. It's has its agenda and it's driven and all we do is we do we facilitate its agenda so that's very hard for the the strong men to deal with as as we've seen they have to go into total denial so again to to, to bring it round i think it's all moving forward it's kind of the the the, the feminine approach is the web the network the distributed use of power the linking everyone together so that everyone's supporting everyone else and and not having not having kings and leaders and figureheads and and guys waving little red books on manifestos beautiful well <laughs> i'll let you go work i think no, so that, much honestly, for... that, was, that was great Doug. that was much it was great to talk to you again we should do this i know often. You haven't done a big media interview in a long, long time. I was looking, I mean, some journal things or outside Comic-Con, you know, about this or that. But to get in there deep is fun. And just to, uh, I'd want to talk to you anyway. I'd want to be having this. I mean, for listeners, this is the same conversation we'd be having anyway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I forgot you were the cool. <laughs> Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was the one and only Grant Morrison. You can get his comics anywhere or stream his two current television shows, Brave New World on NBC's Peacock or Happy on Sci-Fi. Don't forget to think about subscribing even at the two bucks a month level to get access to my conversations from the vault with Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, and much, much more. Team Human was produced by Josh Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. Our community manager is Michael Bass. 
I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Peeps.